0: So it's been a few weeks since we've been in Matthew. Um, we we started the, the Lord's Prayer a while back, and we really went kind of slow. Um, you know, we spent a week on our Father in Heaven. We spent a week on Hallowed be Your Name. We spent a week on Your Kingdom Come. We spent a week on Your Will be done. And we took it real slow, um, cause that those those. Four lines, they say a lot. Um, They say a lot about who God is. And it's good for us to take our time to understand more about God. Um, And why do we pray it? Why do we pray these things in this first half of the Lord's Prayer? Uh, It's because we believe them, right? We believe in who He is. Uh, but also, um, we pray these things, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, because I hope that you desire that your life reflect those things. And our prayer in those things is, is crying out to the Lord, petitioning to him that he be glorified in our lives, that we live as he desires and, and demands and who He is, but we shift our focus and we're going to go from about 10 miles an hour to about 90 miles an hour. Uh, because I want, to, I want to get through the rest of this prayer this morning um, for, for a couple different reasons. Uh, but this, the second half of this prayer, the focus shifts to some degree. The first four lines or so, we're all about God, right? Um, And us glorifying God. The last half shifts to where the focus becomes your needs. And I'm going to tell you this. You need a lot, okay? So hear me now. Don't take this lightly. I mean, you got to remember, uh, I'm getting ahead of myself, but that's okay. This is, this is a model, but it's also Jesus teaching us something, right? Not just how to pray, but what he's telling us to pray, if we consider it and look at it, he, tells, he is teaching us about himself, the Father, and about who we are. About, you, about who you are as a human being. So my desire today is that we 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 speed through this, um, and and the two reasons why I'm okay with this is because a lot of this gets covered in Matthew. Okay, okay. we're gonna hit a lot of this stuff as we go through Matthew, like uh, some of it within chapter six. Uh, so we're not gonna be missing out on anything, and we could spend days and weeks on each one of these petitions, and so we, I promise you we won't we won't miss anything over. Over time. Uh, but number two, another reason why I want to get through this today, uh, and we, we kind of talked about it in Sunday school. Um, I don't know, and everyone might not be aware, but the first four weeks, the first four, the fir, or four weeks, sorry, before Christmas, the church historically has celebrated what's been known as Advent, a season of remembering. Um, The Old Testament Hebrews and ultimately the world awaiting the promised Messiah. The word advent means waiting or or, I mean, I'm sorry, means coming, right? They were waiting for a coming Messiah. We talked about that in Sunday school this morning. We get to celebrate that he has come. We get to celebrate his birth. We get to celebrate what we call the incarnation of God becoming flesh, right? Emmanuel, as we heard this morning. Uh, there's a multiple multitude of reasons why spending time considering this is important. But the other one is we are now waiting on the same Messiah to come again, right? And so... Christmas has become a mess out there. But we, we as Christians, we redeem this season to not get caught up in what goes on in the world, but to stop, slow down, and consider Christ. His first coming his work towards us and His second coming, and so it's it's become a beautiful time of year for our family as we celebrate it at home, and so I hope that we can do this together as a church family. And so over the next, starting next week, we will be we will be considering um, things in this area. Uh, you know, like we're we're about there in Sunday school class. We're we're going to hit Isaiah nine pretty quick. You know, and that that is. Focusing on the coming Messiah. Okay, so I've spent too much time talking about this. So that I want you to be aware of that. And one more thing. Uh, if you look on your bulletin this week, there's something different on the back. Uh, and this kind of goes along with Advent, but also basically for the future. i want to start putting a Bible reading plan on the back of the bulletin. And I know most of you are probably already reading something or have a plan. But what I want, what, I, what my hope is is, is, is that we, as a body, are actually spending time in the Word together. While we might not be in the same house, we might not even be in the same county, but we can all be reading the same thing. It's two chapters a day, so I, I don't think... If you've already got something um, on your plate as far as what you're reading, I don't think it would add much. Um, starting next week, it's going to change to be more Advent-related. And then in the beginning of the year, it'll look more like a, 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 a genuine reading plan. And so the hope is, is that we are all seeking in the same place. Um, and you'll be surprised when we come together on Sunday how much our Sunday school lesson and sermon... Will tend to hit what we're reading, and we wouldn't have it, even planned it. So that's another thing. Uh, but back to the Lord's prayer. Um, I'm gonna have to get moving. So as I said, the Lord's prayer is a model. It's a teaching tool. Do you, Do you remember what the disciples asked Jesus? Uh, teach us how to make a table. No, right? Uh, teach us how to memorize scripture. No, teach us. How to pray. And so, it's not just a, here's what to pray, but this is how you should pray. Take it. Study it. Think about it. Meditate on it. Right, And if you look closely at this prayer, as we've already discussed, you're going to see a whole mess of things. Um, Part one, as we mentioned, is God's fatherly attributes, His holiness, His sovereign rule, His kingdom, His will. Um, this, a depth of, of wisdom can be taken from just the first few lines. And as we gain understanding about God in the first, uh, it helps us to understand the second part a lot better, you, who you are in reference to those first four lines. So part two, we begin to realize something about us, um, Three things we can realize, and I'll give these three things and then we'll bounce down each one. Uh, You're really needy. And I mean, really needy. And I am too. Mankind is really needy. I mean, look at the request, the way, starting in verse 11, how each one uh, comes out. Give us. Forgive us. Lead us. Deliver us. You've probably been around that type of person where they're constantly coming to you and asking you for something. Yeah, and it might be your kid, you know? Uh, or grandkid, or your neighbor, or your coworker. And they ask, and they're always asking things of you, and you're like, oh, get away. But... That's more more likely um, an issue within what's going on with them. But it is a good reflection of who you are. You should be halfway, and forgive this, you should be halfway annoying to God that you are constantly going back to him. I need this from you. Oh wait, I also need this from you. Can you do this for me? I need you to do that for me. But that's... When we look back at the first line of this verse, our Father in heaven. So if my kids do that to me, their Father on earth, I'm like, ah. But when we have a God who is our Father in heaven, we come to Him and we ask of Him and He provides for us. The first thing we see is that we are really needy people. These requests, these requests tell us that you, the one who's praying, need God to do something. Like, what is it? Physical? Check. Yes. Spiritual? Check. Yes. All of it, your life depends on God and these things. Uh, the second part of the Lord's prayer is our acknowledgement of our needs. That's what prayer is, Right? Our acknowledgement of our needing God—it's an acknowledgement of our dependency on God, on our humility to want to to need to ask. Um, James, Jesus' brother, right? He says, "You do not have because you do not ask." You do not have because you do not ask. So the first thing is you're, you and I are really needy people. We need God. The second is we need God because, and this is a strong word, I think, because you are weak. Um, what do I mean by weak? I mean, you cannot help yourself. You're helpless, and not just that, but there are—you uh, have weaknesses towards certain things, certain tendencies. Think about a time in your life. Uh, for some of this, some of you, this could be very recent. Um, think about a time in your life when you uh, physically were incapable of getting out of bed or off the couch. Or whatever the case may be, right? Think about that time. You might have the stomach bug uh, It could all the way to cancer, uh, to car wreck. What, uh, you might just have COVID. Whatever the case may be, you, you just feel helpless. You, you don't even want to move a muscle. You don't want to get out of bed. Remember that feeling of being useless. Unable to feed yourself unable to get up to go to the bathroom. You had to depend on somebody, and hopefully there was someone there to depend on. Right? And so the last few verses of this this prayer, of the Lord's Prayer, are these requests or petitions of a person who realizes that in the grand scheme of life, they are bedridden. They are laid up, weak, in desperate need of God to provide them all things. Now, I don't want you to get this sense and walk out the door and say, you're weak, I'm weak, we're all weak. No. By acknowledging our weakness, we're acknowledging that God is not, right? That God is strong. The point isn't to uh, get all woe is me, but it's to... Exalt God as one who is not weak. In our weakness, he is made strong, right? So don't, don't go there. But here, here's the kicker when we think about being physically bedridden as opposed and in desperate need and, and acknowledging it. Here's the kicker. When you're physically hurt, sick, or bedridden, it's pretty obvious you're weak, right? It's not, there's not much denying it. You want to move, but you can't because it hurts so bad, or, you'll, or you're, you're so nauseous that you'll, you'll get sick. It's pretty obvious. And it becomes pretty easy to humble yourself. Like, have you been in the hospital and people have had to help you do things that you would typically not want people to help you do things with? Because you're like, I can't do it. And so I'm willing to humiliate myself so that someone else can do this for me. I'm going to depend on you. But when it comes to depending on God, it gets harder. Now, I want you to think about this. You are more willing to let someone help you in the bathroom in the hospital than you are to depend upon God for anything. Now, that that's just our nature. That's, that's who we are born, how we are born. And so... What comes into play here? It's pride, right? It's, it's it's being prideful. We are prideful people, and you you came about you came by it honestly. Your mom and dad were prideful people, and their mom and dad all the way back to Adam and Eve. Who guess what? They thought that they could be independent, right? They stood in the garden and thought that they could be independent because the serpent said, you could be like God. And so they ate. So our pride comes in the way and we say, we, our actions say this, we might not say this, I am my own God. I know what's best for me and by golly, I'll get it. Alright? I'll get it. So, the, so, so we're, we're, we need God. We're really weak. And the last thing, and this is implied. This, you kind of have to think about this one. The last thing in this, in this second half of the Lord's Prayer is to show us the reality of living by faith. Living by faith. When I, and when I say faith, especially when you live by faith, it's not just acknowledging something. It's trusting in someone, right? It's trusting in someone. True faith for a Christian isn't a one-time thing. True faith for a Christian isn't a one-time thing. It's not just your admittance into heaven. The Bible's very clear that the Christian life is a life of constantly acknowledging our dependence on God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in all things. And then there's this phrase we get through all throughout Scripture that says, the righteous live by faith. Not just they're made right by faith, through faith. Well, they are, but then they continue living by faith, trusting that they need God for all things. And here here and we'll finish, this is the last thing and we'll go and look at these real quick. Prayer, so we're looking at the Lord's Prayer. Prayer is a gauge of that faith. right? So how so a gauge like your speedometer, how fast you are going, your gauge tells you this. Prayer is a gauge into your faith. I mean, yes. Your prayer life reflects your trust in God. So, what would be on the gauge? Shallow? Uh, I have faith when it comes to material things. Like, I, I go to God when I need something. I need some money. Or I need something physical. Physical. Uh, but then on the opposite side the gauge might read deep and intimate and then there is the, the other part where it just don't read at all because there is no prayer so with that in mind, what do we need from God? Verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. Now this one, off, just off the cuff, is a little difficult for us today. Uh, looking around, I don't, I don't think anyone in here did not have an opportunity to eat before they came. All right? Uh, I don't think anyone was real nervous about what they were going to eat. We more than likely have access to three meals today and the seven snacks in between that we get at our house. All right. Our cupboards are full. Um, but see, you got to consider Jesus' audience the day that he said this and any other time he said this. They weren't as well fed as we were, right? They, they did not have the luxury that we have. Um, the crowds followed Jesus actually because he made bread appear. And so they're like, we're going to follow that guy because I'm full. And Jesus acknowledges this later, but that's another sermon. So the next meal in Jesus' time was not always a certain thing. Uh, and this is true for some today, and in some countries, it's true for for a massive amount of countries. Jesus says, "If you're troubled about not having food, which if you don't have food, what's the end result? You die, right? So if you're troubled about having food, go to the Lord." Give us this day our daily bread. Lord, today we got to eat. Give us what we need to live to survive, to make it through this day. They had to trust God. And they had to trust that He would provide. You know, in the Old Testament, that was one of God's names. Uh, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. Right? The Lord will provide. And it's not like that's who he is. It's not like what he does, but it's who he is. The provider of all things. But what about us today? So let's think about this today and we'll, we'll we'll wrap this one up. Us today, we eat three meals a day. Our fridges are full. Our pantries are full. We throw away food. So a temptation arises for us today to think that we don't need God when it comes to things like food. Uh, here's where the pride comes in. Here's where the pride comes in. We live in a culture where it says, you work hard, you eat good. Right? That's that's our mentality. You work hard, you eat good, and then in turn we get this phrase, I'm the provider. That's the mentality we take. I'm the provider. Now, don't get me wrong, hard work is essential, and it is a commandment of the Lord to work. And someone who does not work to feed his family is worse than an unbeliever. Not my words. The scripture. But, when you take it to the point where you are the one who deserves the credit for providing, you've gone too far. What it boils down to that even though you work hard for what you have, you have it because God gave it. Um... The reality, God doesn't owe you anything. And nothing is promised tomorrow. Notice, give us this day, our daily bread. And we're going to look more about, we're going to look more into that. That will really translate into a lot that we're seeing in Matthew 6. About going to the Lord just for the day's needs. Not looking forward into tomorrow. We'll cover more of that in, in this chapter as we move through it. So what is our request here? Why, would we, why w- would we have to redo this or rethink this since, you know, we've got all of our food we need? Here's our prayer. God, I cannot, I will not live another day apart from your provision I have needs that only you can meet. Food, clothing, shelter, and your job to buy the food, clothing, and shelter. And not only your job, but you hardworking people. The only reason you're a hardworking person is because God has enabled you to be a hardworking person. You might get up tomorrow and not want to uh, lift a finger. So the first line, give us this day our daily bread, is saying, God, okay, I need some things in order to live. And I want to acknowledge that apart from your provision, you giving to me, I will die. I will die. Um, So... Let's just look, and we'll stop on this one right here. Go, go down in Matthew 6 a little bit. I'll just read this. I'm not going to give any commentary on it. Uh, look at verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more more value than they, of which you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin yet I tell you even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these but if God clothes the grass clothes the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven will he not much more clothe you o oh, you of little faith hang on to that o oh, you of little faith first 31, therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? Here's what I tell you to say. Give us this day our daily bread. Not to be concerned about those things, about the things that which you need, but in faith, turn to the Lord and ask for them and trust that he will provide. But I got to read the rest of it. Verse 32, for the Gentiles seek after these things. They seek after them. Like, uh, Layla, dream cars. Okay, sorry, that was a conversation on the way to church this morning. The Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. What? Food clothing but seek first the kingdom of god and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you so that's just a question for you to walk away with in your mind i'm not going to talk about it seek first the kingdom of god and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you that's a pretty big statement can you stop and say that you put The kingdom of God and righteousness before all things. And I I want you to meditate and dwell on that this week. Do you put the kingdom of God and righteousness above all things? Okay, let's move on. Forgive us our debts. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Okay, so now as much as you need food and all these other things to live, uh, you need forgiveness all the more. Food, water, shelter, clothing sustains your body. But forgiveness brings life to your soul. Right? And what's the difference between the body and the soul? Eternity, right? Right? From dust you came? Uh, it reminded me as I was reading this of Paul to Timothy in a different sort of topic, but he said this and it, it, it applies in this. it's kind of the same principle overshadows it. While bodily training, Paul is telling Timothy, while bodily training is of some value, godliness of, is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life And also for the life to come. And forgiveness is the on-ramp to godliness. Forgiveness is the on-ramp for anything. For eternal life. And for living in this life for the glory of God. Uh, But why debts, right? So... Forgive us our sins, we would understand that. Why forgive us our debts? Well, consider, let's just consider our system of law. Uh, You're driving, say you're driving down the road, you and your significant other, and you look over and you see that they're kind of creeping above the 60, and you're like, can you slow down? I can't afford a fine right now. Like, I don't want to pay that price. I don't want to pay the penalty, because if you break a law in our land, there is a Penalty or a price to be paid. Sometimes it's money. Sometimes it's community service. Sometimes it's part of your life. Sometimes it is your life. But you owe a debt to society if you break the laws of society. You see where I'm going here? The sum of your debt to God is incalculable. Because you have broken the laws of God. And your your debt is not repayable from you. And you consider the parable of the unforgiving servant, and we'll get to it at some point in Matthew. And the, the servant, so the king calls up all of those who are in debt to him so that he'll be repaid. And the the servant, a part of the parable, comes up. And he owes the king 10,000 talents. One talent is 20 years of wages. 20 years. He owes him 10,000. So, Is he ever going to be able to repay that? No. And that's the point of that amount in Jesus' parable. The debt... That is owed to the king is not payable. So we ask ourselves, do we feel the weight of your debt towards God? I, we get pulled over. We're pretty upset that we got to pay a ticket, right? That's a lot of money. But does it bother you when you sin against God? Do you realize that you have just added to the debt that which you could never repay? And here's the the truth of it. God's an accountant. He keeps the record. Right? (laughs) Nothing gets... There's no other books. There is one book of record, and he's keeping it all. But the gloriousness of our gospel is this theme of redemption. And we could spend too much time talking about it, but to be redeemed in Bible time means to pay someone's debt and free them from their indebtedness. And this is a theme of Scripture. So we're talking about last, uh, on Sunday evening, about biblical theology, that the, the, the ideas of God and of His plans and redemptive purpose that stretch from beginning to end. Redemption is one of those. Redemption is one of those. God sent His Son to pay the ransom, to redeem you from your indebtedness to God. Uh, Look quickly at Colossians. Turn with me to Colossians. Chapter two. So God is, is, is keeping the record and the record, they'll be paid. Right? As the king in the parable of the unforgiving servant, went to collect, God will collect. But in Christ, in Christ, the debt has been collected for those who are in Christ. Look at Colossians 2. Colossians 2. Thirteen and fourteen, starting in first, uh, second uh, Colossians two, verse thirteen. And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, with Jesus, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal with its legal demands. You might have a translation that says the handwritten documents or something of that nature that's the accounts that's the records it's all written down but when Christ came he canceled the record of the debts that for those that are in him and that record of debt stood against us with its legal demands it must be paid this he set aside What did he do with it? He nailed it to the cross. Which means he paid the debt with his life. He set it aside. Now listen, we could say he set it aside and was like, oh, we're just going to rip that page out of the books. No, it was paid. As the wrath of God... Think about the meanest person you know and how nasty they could be to you. They didn't even come close to the wrath of God poured out upon a sinner. And He poured that wrath out upon His Son so that you don't have to reach into your back pocket and try to pay a debt that you cannot pay and send you to hell. Again, we depend on God for this. Just two things and we'll move on. Those who have been forgiven never stop asking for forgiveness. Those who have been forgiven never stop asking for forgiveness. Why? Not because you got to, you know, not because the record hadn't been cleaned, but because you keep on sinning. And those... Who have been forgiven, forgive others. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Not we will, but we have. Those who have been forgiven, forgive others. All right, last one. Uh, and, And these two go together in verse 13. Uh, they don't really make sense apart, actually, as I've, I've realized, as I've been studying through this. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from, from evil. Uh, just the beginning of this sounds a bit strange to us, right? Because we're asking God not to leave a, lead us into temptation. And we think, well, doesn't Jesus' brother, James, say that God tempts no one? Like, so what's going on here? He wants Jesus wants me to pray. Lead me not into temptation, but Jesus brother says God tempts no one. Um, yeah, so on the surface it might be a little confusing. So what do we need to what do we need to think about? Few things, real quick. Temptation is not sin. We we put those two so closely together. To be tempted does not mean that you have sinned, right? it means sins dangling out in front of you but it does not mean that you have actually uh sinned uh, another thing temptation in this with this greek word it has this more of this idea of a test a trial see we've we've gotten so we've gotten so mixed because of our culture because of all the types of temptation and so we're like oh that place is that's full of temptation and we've just said like that's a that's sin you know and so we've gotten so close to just saying temptation is sin and bad bad and this and that and we want to stay away from it no temptation can actually be good and you're like i don't know about that no it it can this word that jesus is using uh is that can actually be a good thing this is the third thing To overcome or to be victorious through temptation is a good thing for your soul. It's a good thing for your soul. Number four, the opposite. To succumb to temptation, you succumb to temptation because you chose evil over righteousness. Not because God led you into temptation. Right? So, quickly, turn to James with me. I've been talking about this guy for... 30 minutes. Let's see what he's got to say. James chapter 1. If you get to Peter, you've gone too far. Just right after Hebrews. James 1, starting in verse 2. I'm going to try not to say too much here. Alright, so verse 2, chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. I'll just tell you that trials—the word in Greek—is the exact same word for temptations. Okay, count it all joys, my brothers. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials or temptations of various kinds. For you know that the testing—so, okay—you've reached a point. There's a crossroad. There, you've, you're being tempted. So in temptation, guess what? There is a right and a wrong. There is a righteousness and an evil. There is an obedience and a path to disobedience. For you know that in making that decision, God is now God is testing his people, his children. Not just any old Joe, but his He's testing them. And like by fire, right? Like as we want to purify gold and silver, we want to take out the dross, we want to take out the impurities. They're tested by fire. This is where we come to in our temptation. That in being victorious and overcome, we are made more pure, more like Christ. Look what he says. Verse 3, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Look down at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under temptations or trials. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. So basically, that's a lifetime of temptation and trial, right? That's not, it doesn't go away. And you'll see why in a minute. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So let's hang on to that for a minute. Do you love God? Do you love God? For those who love God, you will go through a a plethora of trials. You will be tempted, but you will be kept. So notice, I'm going back to verse 3. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. If you love Christ, if the Spirit of God is in you, it might not be every time but you will be steadfast in these trials and temptations for those who love God. Verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So what's going on? Verse 14, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. The desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it has grown, brings forth death. So here's, here's what I want to... Here's what we we'll just... We'll finish here. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We're acknowledging our weakness here. God... If I go into this, if I go towards temptation, I know that I am weak and there's a desire, a passion in me that's going to give in. But deliver me from evil. Keep me. Preserve me. Purify me. I am weak and needy. And I cannot stop myself. I need you. We pray, lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. We're acknowledging our weakness, our inability to stay away from the sin and from evil. That might be the evil one. That might be the evils of the world. And that might be the evilness in your flesh. Deliver me! Now we could go on a full week about that word "deliver." Just means rescue, right? Think about Israel to be rescued, to be saved out of uh, out of um, bondage from slavery. I'm gonna skip a bunch here, but I want you to understand: you are enslaved to your own sin apart from Christ. You need a redeemer. You need a deliverer. Apart from that. You will fall. You will be a slave to your sin. Read Romans 6 this week. Along with the Bible reading plan. Uh, just turn to Hebrews and we'll finish here. And we'll, we'll conclude here. See if you can pick up, what's up, up on some familiar language between Jesus and... James and the writer of Hebrews, chapter 2. So basically, this is what I want you to take away. I hope the second half of this prayer has made you uncomfortable. Because we're always fighting pride. We're always fighting this reality that we can make it on our own. But what most of all I want you to understand is that you... Let's just read Hebrews 2.14. This prayer should make you think about Christ. Christ. And so Hebrews 2.14 helps us to understand what he's done for us. Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he, Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things. He partook of the flesh. That through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all of those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Verse 16, for surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. This gets really good. Listen, therefore, he has he had to be made like his brothers, like mankind in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Forgive us of our sins is not possible without the wrath of God upon His Son on the cross. Verse 10, For because He Himself has suffered when tempted, Ah, Jesus was tempted. And not just in uh, the wilderness, but in His life. For because He Himself has suffered when tempted, So, to do the right thing in temptation... Says he suffered. Chew on that for a while. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Chapter 4, verse 14, and I finish up here. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Hold fast. This is a life. This isn't a hobby. Christianity is life. It is your life. Christ is your life. And we must hold fast. 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He knows our weaknesses, he felt our weaknesses, and yet, as Romans 8 said, has condemned sin in the flesh. So let us then, with confidence, draw near. The Lord's Prayer, the last half, that is what we're talking about. Drawing near to God through prayer. Let us then draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we might receive, because guess what? We're needy people and we're asking, we're asking, we're asking, we're asking. That we might receive mercy because you're not promised or owed anything. And find grace to help in time of need. If you walk out these doors today and you don't feel your need, I worry about you. This book was written because you are needy. And God has all that you need. Is your life here? Is your life here? Or is it out there? Feed on feed on the bread of life, believe continually and be satisfied in Christ and in Christ alone. Let's pray.